Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Thank you very much for being here. Today's guest is a legend in the behavior space, a professor, a tenure professor at Stanford, one of the best universities in the entire world. This guy is the guy behind all of the research on behavior change. All the books that are coming out now are on behavior change. A lot of that is focused around this gentleman's research. He's the cream of the crop. He's the guy that everybody's referencing when they're speaking about behavior change research. And I'm truly honored and privileged to welcome BJ Fogg to the podcast today. He joins us live from Hawaii, or maybe not live, but he was live at the time. And uh, we talked a lot about some of the tactics and strategies you should be using to ultimately change. The beauty of this podcast, more than anything, you know, BJ's got 20 years of doing this behavioral psychology and the behavioral science. Uh, but the best thing is the simplicity that he breaks it down to, right? A true master of his craft. BJ really breaks it down to, this is really simple, just do this. And he gives us a, a couple really actionable processes that we can use immediately to start making changes in our life. And, it, and I won't tell you what it is because I want you to listen to the podcast because it's so good. I can't describe it quite as well as T does, obviously. Um, but BJ is uh, very well known for the book called Tiny Habits. If you've heard of the book, Tiny Habits, he's the author of that book, as well as the Tiny Habits Process for Behavior Change. Truly an exceptional conversation, an exceptional man. Uh, BJ, thank you for being here. I appreciate you being a guest of the podcast. And for you, being a listener to the podcast, thank you guys very much for being here. I do my best to search the world to bring you the best information, or at least the most useful information. There's so much information out there. Sifting through it can be very, very challenging and overwhelming. And as a coach, many years of coaching uh, high achievers, athletes, executives, entrepreneurs, um, I realized it's a small number of things that everyone's experiencing that is slowing them down, is holding them back from achieving the body, the life of their dreams. And you guys know that executing a plan or execution of a plan is a big one, right? It's a behavior. It's not just like, hey, give me a great plan. I could give you the best plan in the entire world and not everyone's going to succeed. And it has nothing to do with their ability to succeed. It has nothing to do with their genetics. It has to simply do with their ability to follow through. And so you could break that down to their belief systems, their identities, and their behaviors. And so BJ is going to walk us through exactly how to start changing your behavior so you can step into your greatness and ultimately express the greatness that is inside of every one of us. And so all of you out there, I encourage you to start looking at yourself as the root of you know, the, uh, call it the problem or the opportunity that exists to step into your greatness. It always is within our belief systems, our identities and our behaviors. And if you need support with this, this is why the podcast is here. Um, the, today's podcast is brought to you by Bubs. Bubsnaturals.com is the place to find it. As you know, for gosh, what, three, four, maybe five years now, I've been religiously using Bubs. Uh, in my coffee in the morning and my pre-workout shake. I'll tell you why collagen goes into the into the morning coffee and into the pre-workout shake. It's very important for a lot of things other than just protein synthesis. It does so much more than just whey protein. We actually balance out insulin levels. So it can actually help to regulate blood glucose. It can actually help significantly with joints. And the, the amino acid glycine, which is really rich in collagen, actually helps a lot with calming down the nervous system at night. So sometimes putting it in after the workout or before bed is a very good idea to start calming you down. I usually will add MCT collagen, lion's mane, GPC into my morning coffee just to light up my brain. MCT is a fast-acting ketogenic fat, which goes directly into the cells to be used as energy and not stored as fat. So head over to bubsnaturals.com. Use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with 20% off ongoing. That's for the collagen, super cheap. Honestly, it's probably the best price and the best quality that exists. Head over to bubsnaturals.com right now. Use the code muscle to get hooked up with 20% off. I'd love to have you just kind of reverse us into how this started for you and how you became a behavior scientist and certainly how it, how it ended up at Stanford, maybe the most respectable place in the world to do it. Yeah. Um, I'll keep it brief, Ben. I, I long, ever since I was a kid, I was interested in optimizing my uh, behavior to be more efficient. Uh, I was pretty good in sports, you know, so I wanted to be faster and better at baseball and everything. And then that just kind of stuck. I, mean, I grew up in a family that had that orientation and a culture as well. And so then when I got to college, it was just natural to be interested in um, things that would help me understand how to optimize who I was, 
uh, both intellectually and physically. And in this case, I grew up Mormon, so spiritually and things like that. Um, but I think in terms of tiny habits, the real moment was about in 2009, 2010, I was working really hard at Stanford, doing research, running conferences, teaching, and then working outside in industry. And I was just getting old quickly and I had gained weight. Uh, you know, it just creeps up on you. And then it's just like, oh my gosh, I gotta, I gotta get on top of this. And so I started just goofing around. I looked at my own model, my the fog behavior model, and started experimenting with new ways of creating habits. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but over the course of months, um, and I guess all told eight months, I said, oh my gosh, this is great. This totally works. I called it Tiny Habits. And in 2011, I started inviting, I thought it was only going to be like six people to, I'm going to teach you this new way to create habits. And like 59 or 60 people, something like that, signed up. So I coached them during the week. I got the feedback results. I iterated. I got it like 120 or 80 a lot the next week, just word of mouth. And it just went from there. So I developed the method really to help me. <laughs> and then when I started teaching it, it worked for other people and it just went on its own. And so week after week for years, eight, nine years, I coached people hands-on personally, and it added to be thousands and thousands of people. So that, yes, I was able to dial in my uh, physical activity, my nutrition, uh, my sleep as much as I can. It's, that's an ongoing challenge, et cetera. But it also makes me feel great that I've helped a lot of people. And so Bam, it hit on both things for me. Totally. So talk to me about, you know, prior to Tiny Habits, the FOG behavior model. I'm curious what that looked like. Yeah. So the behavior model goes like this. Behavior happens when three things come together at the same moment. There's motivation to do that behavior. There's the ability to do the behavior. And there's a prompt. And if any one of those are missing, the behavior doesn't happen. And in this case, behavior is not like an abstract thing like exercise. It's like surf in the morning. So I'm in Maui now. I surf every morning, except for this morning, I did not. Why? Because I didn't have the ability. Um, and in some regard, the motivation. But let's just characterize it as an ability challenge because I didn't have the time this morning because um, I was up really late doing this you know, global interview last night. And after I woke up, I went immediately. Well, like within 10 minutes, I was in a meeting. So I was lacking ability. I was motivated to surf. I was prompted to surf, but what was missing was ability. So when you think about the behavior model, it's not for something abstract like eat healthy or you know, de-stress. It's for specific things like eat. Um, I love pesto, eat pesto on my fish. That's a specific behavior. Or it's, you know, meditate for 10 minutes in this spot using this technique. That's a specific behavior. And the model applies to all behaviors uh, for people of all ages and of all cultures. Um, and so it is this, uh, just delighted that it's this solution to a riddle that has existed for, I, I think, thousands of years. And it really, behavior boils down to just three components, motivation, ability, and prompt. Okay, so walk me through the prompt. Uh, motivation and ability seem like they're relatively intuitive. And I'm curious, it seems like you're creating kind of an anchor, right? It's like, what's that yeah. thing that's setting off the behavior? So I'm curious how uh, you, know, you set up that. Yes, there are, um, let's step back a bit. The broader name for my work, I call behavior design. And that's the term we came up with in my lab in 2010. So you can see there's a lot of things happening in around 2010, 2011. Um, and in, so behavior design is a system. There's a new set of models. That's ways of thinking about behavior. That includes the fog behavior model and a new set of methods. And they work together. Tiny habits is one of those methods. So within the tiny habits method, there's a specific way that you design a prompt. That's one of three categories. Um, so I'll, I'll describe the three categories and I'll get to the tiny habits way. The three different ways that we are prompted, one is I call a context prompt. 
that would be like a post-it note or an alarm or your phone ringing like mine just did or somebody saying hey remember you know you're going to go you know talk, you know talk to your students um so that's something in your context that's reminding you next is a person prompt that is just you just remember to do it oh i need to you know get on slack and post the homework for my students, or I need to look at what my research lab's doing. So you just rely on your own memory. A person prompt can also be a feeling of pain, like, oh, I'm feeling this pain, so I'm going to put on this CBD cream, all right? The third, and this is the tiny habits way, is you use an existing routine, something you already do to remind you to do the new habit. Um, so for me, when I get in the car after I surf here in Maui, and as soon as I pull into the highway, there's a certain intersection that when I reach that point, it prompts me to call my parents. So I'm not just relying on memory. I'm not using a post-it note or alarm. I'm using an existing routine that I have most every morning, not this morning, but all other mornings pretty much. And that's when I uh, call my parents. And so it's a really great, elegant way for habits to um, find where habits fit in your life naturally and you use your existing routine to be the prompt for a new habit that you want. Beautiful. Now, the first thing that came to mind is can I use what I may have may attribute as a negative habit to create a positive uh, response? Example, yes. I'm going into the junk cabinet in my house. I create the association. I'm about to reach for the cookies. And I say, instead of eating the cookie, I'm going to go for a 10-minute walk. Is that, yeah. is that something that works or is that... Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there's specific challenges in that. And the way to really map that out, Ben, this is toward the end of my Tiny Habits book, where I talk about changing a choice. Now, it's limited in the Tiny Habits book, but the essential pieces are there where you're looking at here's the existing behavior and here's the alternate behavior. And you're looking at the relative motivation and ability for the existing versus the alternate, the incumbent versus the upstart, the habit you don't want versus habit you do want. I'm using all those as synonyms. Mm -hmm. And so there is a systematic way to map it out. Um, but the answer to the question is yes. And let me give you one that I do. Um, after, uh, so sleep is a struggle for me and I'm always trying to optimize my, my sleep and I've been doing great until I had to stay up till 1238 under bright lights. Uh, so I'm going to have to dial that back in. But let's say on a typical night, I might get restless at 2 or 2.30 and I'll want to get up and just sit in my rocking chair and go out and look at the stars. You know, there's something that says, yeah, get up. So what I do in that case, Ben, that works for me is after I sit up on the side of the bed thinking I'm going to get up, I will lay back down for 15 seconds or so. And then if I still want to get up, I do. But what happens, so that suboptimal behavior of sitting, you know, going to get out of bed leads me to lay back down. And most of the time, and it still surprises me, I lay back down and it's like, this feels so good. What was I thinking? I'm just going to go back to sleep. Now, another scenario for this is using a negative emotion to prompt you to do something. And I'm teaching a Stanford course right now that's about tiny habits for happiness and humor. And the students at Stanford, like so many people around the world, there's a lot of negative emotions going on. And so they're creating tiny habits. Like after I feel inferior, because at Stanford, there's so many students who brag about all their awesomeness. After I feel inferior, I will. And then they come up with a habit that will help them feel better. You know, I'll think of one achievement I have, or I will think about the people that are, you know, that got me here to Stanford or so on. So you can even take negative emotions. It's, it's a higher level. It's a harder skill than the sitting on the edge of the bed uh, and laying back down. But yes, that absolutely can work. And so you can turn that negative thing into something positive. And that specific type of tiny habit I call a pearl habit. You're taking an irritation and you're making it into something beautiful. Some of the biggest challenges you've experienced throughout the years with ultimately these, these attempts at behavior changes have been some that are just very difficult to change. That, yep. Yes. Um, yes, in different ways. However, when people say behavior change is hard or habits are hard, that's not true. That's like saying cooking is hard. Yeah, some cooking is hard, some's really easy. And so just to 
you know, generalize like, oh, it's really hard to change. That's not true. We change all the time. Uh, we just moved from California to Maui, which we do every year. Um, and coming into our Maui home, tons of my behaviors change because it's not the same context and it's not hard. It's required. You know, I can't do the same things I do in California. When I go back to California, I'm not surfing like I am here. So I, you change. And so some, some are easy, some hard, but um, to answer your question uh, more directly, um, nutrition, there are certain types of habits that you really need to change your household because the people around you influence you so much. That's like habits of nutrition. If everybody around you is eating crap, pizza and pop and ice cream, just watching TV, and you're trying to stick to your game plan, that's hard. Now you can do it, but it's hard. So getting the household to cooperate on, here's how we eat in this house. Here are the foods that are allowed. Like in our home, ice cream is not allowed. And we just have that policy. And that's great because then I don't like, you know, eat a ton of ice cream. Um, um, media use is better changed as a household unit. Uh, sleep, of course, is better done as a household unit because if people are up and noisy at different times, that can, can be a challenge. Um, so one of the things I'm a huge fan of is changing together um, for those habits in those categories. And when you do change together, like in nutrition and everybody has the same or very similar game plan, man, it makes it so much easier to stick to that game plan. Yeah. The reason I asked that question specifically was um, oftentimes I noticed the environment seems to be one of the biggest triggers to people as far as yeah. potentially destructive behaviors that they want to change and they can't. So is that the suggestion is to changing, changing the environment, like literally changing the house or reorganizing the furniture or is it, is it like I have to move? Yeah. Or changing like your roommates, like in college, we had a lot of mobility and you could have roommates that cared about the same things you did. Mm -hmm. And ideally that's what you did. So you, you know, I had roommates that were really interested in working out, roommates that were really interested in studying and things. And so it really helps. Uh, so yeah, part of the environment is the people around you. So if you already have an existing family and all that, sometimes it's hard to swap that out. So uh, that's a little more challenging. But the fact of the matter is the context or environment around us to a very large degree determines our behaviors, including our habits. Habits are a subset of behavior. And by changing your environment or context, you can change your habits actually quickly. Um, and so it's really been under celebrated and under, there's just not enough products and programs out there to guide people on how do you change your office environment? How do you change your home environment? In Tiny Habits, I have this weird section in the book where I talk about changing your fridge environment, and I call it super fridge. So you redesign the interior of the fridge to make it really easy to stick to your game plan. And ideally, there's nothing inside the fridge that is off your game plan. So you can always just open the fridge, eat anything you want. You don't have to exert any discipline or willpower because you've created that uh, food environment and the fridge becomes your ally in achieving um, the nutritional uh, objectives that you have. Yeah, that's the rule in my house. If it's here, you can eat it. And if we just don't bring it in. So well, that's that great. I mean, it's so it's like, I mean, how did that change things for you? I know that for me and others who have done super fridge, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, yeah, wow. And then if we want to eat something off menu, then we just go out to get it and it's not in the house, right? So it's intentional rather than mindless. And I think that's yes. an important thing for people to know. Yeah, exactly. Right on. That's, that's, that's a key right there. So can you walk me through, I think this is a common thing with myself, a common thing with clients, you know, where maybe it's environmental, maybe it's emotional, and we're, we have a feeling or a thought around, I'm, a, I'm, I'm about to do this behavior and I kind of don't want to do it. Like maybe it's like, I know I'm going home to have a drink of alcohol, or I know I'm going to, the, to buy some chocolate at the grocery and I don't really want to do it, but it's this like, it's almost like the tractor beam is pulling you, right? And people talking about this, like, I, do, I can't stop it. Do you have some type of intervention in in, uh, in that moment that you suggest people to participate in? Yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, that kind of dynamic is, I think, very contextual. So there are a few approaches to that. Number one is to just um, 
I'll just give some specific techniques. I won't get into, so I'm a huge fan of systems and frameworks. Okay. Like, cause that's what behavior design is. It's a system. It's a systematic, it's not just techniques. It's a system. And then from that system, you drive techniques and that's, Having a system is great because you can deal with any circumstance. But I'm going to just give a few techniques and not take the time to unmap the whole system. Uh, one technique is like, okay, man, I'm really, really wanting to eat. Um, let's go back to the ice cream. So I'm at a friend's house and they're offering ice cream as a dessert. I really want to eat it. But guess what? I am just going to wait three minutes. And then if I still want ice cream, I'll have it. Okay, so... You know, you can set a timer um, like that. You can say, you know, hey, Siri, set a timer for three minutes. Or you can, if you're in a social situation, you could just have to keep my eye on the clock. I see. And, <laughs> and, it, and, and you just, uh, so you delay the action and you can get yourself to do that because you're not saying no, you're just saying not right now. Another option is to pick an alternative to ice cream that it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna have the ice cream. And this is what happens for us is I'm, I'll have plain yogurt with some cut up apples in it. Yeah, it's not ice cream, but it scratches the itch. So you find an alternative direction that you wanna do. Um, so that's a couple techniques that I think are pretty easy to implement and will apply in a lot of situations. There's more, um, but those are, I think, quite specific and implementable for people. How much have you looked at like the physiological and psychological state um, that's associated with people making those decisions? So an example being, I feel anxious, therefore I want to have alcohol. I feel stressed, therefore I want to eat food. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious if you've walked through some of those physiological realities. Yeah, it's a great question. I haven't studied that, even though in the 1990s, I set up a psychophysiology lab and I ran early psychophysiology kinds of experiments. Mm -hmm. Fast forward, the technology of that gives you a whole bunch of data and a whole bunch of noise. And it was far from a, <laughs> a perfect science and it's still not. But instead, I think about it this way. So I haven't done research just on that. But there are two things. Uh, certainly your emotional state changes how you tackle problems and your identity changes how you make decisions in general. And the key that I have identified and really put out there is helping, it's this feeling of success, it's positive emotions that really help you level up. And so in Tiny Habits and now more generally in my Stanford lab, we just finished a training on upregulating positive emotions. So we're training people and we're doing research in space. So the better you are at feeling positive emotions, yes, the faster you wire in habits because emotions create habits. It's not repetition, it's emotion. So the more you can feel a positive emotion, but what it also does is it builds confidence and motivation. With increased confidence and motivation, you can tackle harder things. And so you can like, oh, resist the ice cream or say no to the, the, the drink, you know, that you really don't want to have at, in that social situation, but you're being pressured to. Um, so the, that, that getting good at feeling positive emotions helps do that. But what it also does in the context of habits, so let's say uh, I'm on the plane. This is a true example. Uh, and I just learned I have to pack my own food on a plane because there's not, almost nothing they serve me except for my first class and then a few things. There's almost nothing on my game plan as well as the airport. So I just have it on my packing list, like pack snacks, pack food. And so when they offer those little crackers and stuff, which would be completely off my game plan, as I say no to that, I'll reach down and pull out some hazelnuts, for example, or these little, um, I'm eating a lot of uh, like seeds and stuff. I think that's working for me right now. And so as I pull out the hazelnuts, for example, as a snack, I can take good for me. I'm sticking to my game plan. That experience of feeling successful in that snacking behavior will then shift someone's identity if they're new to it. It's like, I'm the kind of person who eats healthy snacks. I'm the kind of person who takes care of my food environment. So I'm not vulnerable to that crap on the plane or the stuff in the airport, a bookstore. So that 
emotion, that feeling of success, yes, wires and habits, but it also seems to shift our identity and it can do that really quickly. We've been measuring this in the Tiny Habits five-day program for probably five years. I didn't get it at the start, like in 2011, but in interacting with people, I saw the pattern. So we started measuring it. And so many people report a shift in identity within five days in various ways. And so once you think of yourself as I'm the kind of person who eats healthy and I'm the kind of person who prepares my food landscape, then so many other behaviors come along with that, even if you haven't deliberately planned or designed those habits. But is it, is it as simple as feeling the negative habit come up, the one I want to change and being intentional about choosing something different and, and then rewarding yourself, celebrating? Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's right on. And and the and the celebration could be as simple as good for me, I did what I intended. Just an internal like good for me, I did what I intended. Another celebration might be good for me, I didn't eat that crappy stuff on the plane. This is going to help me reach that, you know, 95-year-old active vibrant person like a life purpose that's very important to you. Mm-hmm. So you can just think of like how that tiny success is helping you reach something very important to you. So that is also a form of celebration. That's a way to feel successful. Right. And how about the flip side of that, PJ? What if I've just consumed the thing I didn't want? You just consumed way more ice cream than you really want to, and you start to feel guilt. How do I make sure that doesn't become part of my identity? You let it go. In the tiny habits method, it's you know from probably the very beginning in 2011, I kept emailing. So the e- coaching I did was through email, you know, mm-hmm. personal email. Practice and revise. Practice means just try it. And revise means, hey, if it didn't work, just move on. And so in the tiny habits method, you don't ruminate. You don't dwell on the mistakes. Uh, you just let it go. And you just try to do better the next day. It's like a baby walking. And the baby's going to stumble and fall. You don't get mad at the baby. You don't chew the baby out. You don't hold it over the baby. You don't put a check mark on the wall that the baby fell. You just go, hey, get back up and keep going. And that's the kind of self-talk we need here, especially for probably many of the habits that people listening want to achieve. Because guess what? You're going against the cultural grain. (laughs) So many things are stacked against you for the things that you're working on. And so you can't just rely on defaults. You, you got to design it into your life and there's going to be setbacks. And in the tiny habits mentality, yeah, when you mess up, you just let it go. If it's systematic, if it starts happening frequently, then you step back and say, okay, what, what redesign do I need to make? Do I need to redesign my environment? Do I need to design a tiny habit recipe for this and so on? But for the most part, you just let it go. And you give yourself compassion, just like you would a baby who stumbles and falls. Yeah, that's brilliant. So I think the the compassion part is often a challenge for people, right? It's not something that we're often taught from a young age. Sometimes, especially in our culture, it's very uh, pursuit oriented. I have to always be getting better. And uh, sometimes being forgiving to yourself is not something that comes easily to some people. And I'm curious if you have a suggestion other than just going, yeah, let it go. Um, But maybe uh, some system that you start using to kind of inculcate like, Hey, shift this. Maybe we could create an anchor around that, that immediate moment and then shift it into, uh, into something different. Do you have a specific process process you might use? Yeah. Well, yes. Um, but I'm going to expand it a little bit. Um, there's a new book out called the gap in the game Mm -hmm. by Dan Sullivan and Ben Hardy. Yeah. I love love their stuff. Yeah. I saw an early copy months ago Mm -hmm. and I was like, Oh my gosh, I love this because what you do is you don't look at how much am I still lacking or is the gap you measure and you focus on the gains that you've made. And that is just, you know, I can explain it in a sentence or two, but it's, there's a lot to it because like you said, we are, especially high achievers, like people listening to this podcast, we, and my Stanford students are always oriented to what am I lacking? How do I get that perfect test score? How do I, you know, like increase the number of pull-ups I can do. How do I swim? How do I win the next swimming? So I'm a competitive swimmer as well. Um, and so it does 
So I told, so I decided to have that book be one of the main books that we read right now at Stanford in our class. And I told my students, I said, intellectually, this book and this segment of the course is not going to be the hardest thing you do to Stanford, but emotionally and in terms of your natural instincts that got you here to Stanford, this could be the most challenging youth thing you do in all your years at Stanford. And the students, it, you know, it is true because it's so opposite of what they've done for so long. However, they need this so much because when you make that shift and you look at the gain and you have uh, rituals and habits around doing that, um, I believe, I say I believe because I haven't done the research and I haven't quantified it and you know done a true experiment. I believe that is the fastest, surest way to bring more happiness into your life. And in some ways, that's the premise of the course. If I can help the students create tiny habits to focus on gain rather than gap, I'm going to make them help them be happier. And that's what we're doing right now. I love that. I love that a lot. So what drives you, BJ? What continues to inspire you to uh, do what you do? You're continuing to do this on such a high level. And I'm curious what drives you to do it. Um, I know it sounds kind of tried and trivial, but it's helping people. It's um, it's helping people regain hope. And that's a big part of the tiny habits, even the five-day program. The, the whole purpose of that, yeah, you'll learn about habits and you'll create habits, but it's really about giving people hope. And they get the hope because they see evidence in their own life that they can change. So taking people out of fear or reducing that fear and giving people hope, giving people confidence and giving people skills of change. Um, it's just, it's always delights me. It doesn't surprise me anymore, but it always delights me when people, even after creating just a few habits that seem really small and maybe trivial, they open up to much bigger changes. And that's in part to their identity shift and they start transforming their lives. And it doesn't take years and years. It can happen really quite quickly, according to my research and how I'm seeing things. And so for me, that is so satisfying. And not just that, Ben, it just, it's what I'm supposed to be doing, okay? It's joining you on this podcast today and sharing and helping others. And there's people within the audience who have a, who can then help their housemates or maybe their clients and on and on. So it is, you know, my mission to help share how behavior really works, help people set aside the stuff that discourages or uh, puts people into shame and instead embrace what actually works and help people feel shine, the feeling of success. Um, I am just completely wired and, that's who I am and that's what I do. And so that's, I don't, I can't go back further and say why I'm that way. You know, I can kind of make up reasons, but it's hard to explain, but it's who I am and it's what I do. And so when you invited me to join you, um, it's like, yeah, let's do this. Thank you. I appreciate it. So tell me about the, the previous notion, at least what we're taught, that it could take 21 to 30 days to create a new habit. It sounds like the method you're teaching goes against that belief. Or is it, is it yeah. possible to create habits in shorter amounts of time? Yes. All of those day counts, those are, that's all hogwash. 66 right. days, not true. If you want to check out the research that a very big book and other site, uh, type in Lolly, L-A-L-L-Y, 2009 into Google. That's all you do. And then just even read the abstract of that study. It does not show that... Hab that repetition causes habits to form. It's a correlation. It's not causal. And that's a big mistake to tell people like just repeat it. Um, parents know that they've had their kid clean up their room hundreds of times. Their kids have repeated that behavior. Has that become a habit after hundreds of times? Probably not. In contrast, something like a wired headset like this that we all used to use. And then wireless headsets came along. How long did that habit take to wear the wireless? One day, one use, right? And so it's not a function of repetition. Habits form as a function of the emotion 
that you feel when you do the new behavior. So the stronger the emotion. So if your brain associates wearing wireless headphones with like, this gives me a superpower. And that happens as you do the behavior. And if it's strong, then that habit will wire in very quickly. There are habits that are like one and done. One and done. You do it one time and the sense of success. And I like also thinking about like, it gives you such a superpower, such a feeling of capacity that you just don't ever consider going back to your wired headset again. Now, in my case, I do because I'm a little concerned. Well, anyway, there are times when I use the wired headset, but I think it's a good example to show that a habit like that can shift very quickly. And so it's not a function of repetition. It's emotion. Yeah. So what's something you believed when you began that now you know not to be true? That if I didn't get on top of my weight and my wellness uh, in, what was I, 45, that it would be too late. Hmm. And I believe that because I looked around me and it's like everybody in their 40s and 50s, I don't know hardly anybody who's fit in the way I want to be fit. And I was like, okay. This is a one-way road. I got to get off this road or I will just be destined to end up in, um, in, a, in a state I don't want to be in. And that was the impetus to start goofing around with my own behavior back then around 2009 and 10. And yes, I was able to tackle nutrition and uh, issues around physical activity on and on and on. And 10 years, I'm exactly at the weight I want to be. And I'm always optimizing this or that, or yeah, I'm going to try skateboarding and I'm going to, I'm on a new surfboard this week, which is pushing me. And I love that. But in terms of dialing in the weight, like the nutrition and keeping it there, it's as you, and probably others know, once you really dial it in, it can feel effortless. So I guess two things. Number one, it's not too late to change. You can be in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, and you can absolutely create habits and you can um, substantially improve your life, including your body composition and your performance capacity and all of that. Um, and I guess the other one, number two, is man, there is absolutely a way to figure out your nutrition game plan, not instantly, at least in my view, and then get to a point where that game plan is really appealing and it does not take willpower or discipline to stick to that game plan. I love that. So BJ, it's funny. I actually coach guys over 40. I coach high achievers over 40, all the way up to 75. Nice. How, how to get in the best shape of your life. And that's the first thing I say is it's not hard. And sometimes the biggest challenge overcoming is, as you say, is their belief around this, this fact that they think it's supposed to be hard or it's been hard in the past and they simply haven't done it correctly yet, right? Yeah, can I share an example from my life? And this yeah, happened. So my partner's older than I am. He is 77 now. I'm 58. Um, and he grew up doing physical work and he's always like been very, very active. He did not have a tradition of working out and especially cardio. I did, you know, from a young kid, I go to the gym and I swim, I played water polo, all this stuff. Um, so he did not. And he just really wasn't tuned into that until one day he got on a concept two rowing machine and he loved rowing. It's like, I had no idea you would love rowing. So we bought the concept two. We, you know, we um, kind of have this home gym that's like a little CrossFit gym for us. And then the hydro came out, you know, the, the hydro with the screen and yeah. the coaches. So yeah. we got that and he loved that even more. So now we have a hydro in California. We have a hydro here in Maui. And last night we're hanging out in Lanai, watching the sunset. He's like, BJ, we can change anything in the house you want and we can get rid of everything, but not the rowing machine. I love that. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating his enthusiasm for it. So here he is. And he gets up first thing and he loves being on. He loves working out. And so if you're not loving your workout, this is my view. I mean, Ben, you're really expert. Find what you do love. Like I love surfing. Yeah. And even if surfing was bad for me, I would still surf. Mm. It's like, but it's a crazy great workout. Plus it's spiritual, plus it's social, plus it's so great. So part of it is finding what you love to do and then making that part of your daily life. Um, and I just feel really lucky that my partner 
and he's in great shape and I'm in, and then I rode when I was in California cause I couldn't surf and I got, you know, I'm, I came back here and I was still in pretty good shape for the waves. I mean, it's a little different, you know, sure. a little bit different. So there's a few days adjusting, but I guess my point of that is, yeah, if you haven't found that thing, keep looking and find that thing that you love doing that you don't have to browbeat yourself into it. It's out there. Just keep exploring. And that's with any kind of habits, whether it's snacking or stress reduction or relationship, just keep exploring till you find the habits that you just love. And of course, those habits are very easy to form. Yeah. And sometimes it's not always right there, right? Sometimes you start something for the first time, really, this wasn't that easy. I kind of like it, but I'm not sure. I felt that way about surfing the first time I surfed. I spent three months recently in Costa Rica. And the uh, first time on a surfboard, I was like, eh, not really my thing. It's it very hard. But, you know, the more often you do it, you're like, gosh, this is amazing. I could see how this would become the most addictive thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. And the reasons that I, I, I've learned. So out there, you know, people didn't know I was a behavior scientist. They kind of do now because my book came out and they saw it. And they're like, are you that guy? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I'm that guy. Or some person said, I recognize your voice from, are you BJ Fogg? Because I guess I have, I have kind of a weird voice and I listen to it. But they, they talk about it. It's like, I'm addicted. I'm addicted, you know? And I didn't say anything about that. But I think here's what it has been, at least from my perspective. As you know, there's a moment as you go to catch a wave, there's a moment that a sliding kind of feeling where you know you've caught it. Yep. And that feels great. <laughs> okay. And that's the moment that you just want over and over. It's like that moment when you know you've got it. And then you have a fun ride or a challenging ride ahead of you. But without that, and so it goes back to that emotion, that that very that sense of catching it that I think is what people out there, they want it over and over and over. And that's kind of what, and then there's all these other great, it's beautiful. You see turtles, you talk to friends, you, the dolphin swam up to you, you saw a whale in distance, but I think it is that sensation yep. that makes surfing addictive for many people. Well, there's, there's dopamine, right? The idea of like, uh, you're, you're chasing the wave, you're chasing the wave. As soon as you get it, you're getting this huge spike of like, oh gosh, I accomplished it. Yeah. So that, that's that's definitely real. And thank you for sharing that. And I'd love to, if you're open to it, love to hear some of the things you've um, kind of landed on with nutrition. So a lot of our audience are people 40 plus, and I'm curious what you landed on as far as how you've managed to find your best um, nutrition that works for you. Yeah. Uh, Cal, this is what I did was a lot of things. Okay. Frankly, a lot of things. And um, how do I make this kind of simple? I started exploring and tuning into foods first that I liked, like, let me try a whole bunch of more foods. What are the foods I like? And then I also believe are good for me. And there's different ways that I would reach the conclusion they're good for me. There's experts like you and others who say, you know, do this, do that, whatever. But I also listen to my body's reaction, mm -hmm. which if I'd heard this 10 years ago, I'd say that's baloney, but there is something. And what I dialed into is like, my body loves fermented foods in the morning. It loves kimchi. It loves sauerkraut in the morning. And so first, so um, eggs work for me. Um, anything, um, there's other things that don't work for me. So part of it is what experts and science says, and part of it is just tuning into how my body reacts to things. Um, and then it's just keep going. Like I made a, a list. So when I dialed it all in, I made a list of here's all the things that work for me. Here are the things that don't. And I gave the list to my dad. My dad's really into, you know, he's in his 80s, but he's really into taking care of himself and stuff. And I said, Dad, here's what's working for me. And because we share a lot of the genetics, it might work for you. And then it was about a year later. And you're going to laugh at me, Ben. So this would be, oh, four or five years ago. So I'd already written this list of here are all the things that work for me. And then I heard of this thing called keto. And I was like, what's that? And I looked at it and I said, that's my list. Oh my gosh, there is my list. And so I was like, where have I been on this whole keto thing? Why have I not heard of it? So I derived, and it wasn't exactly the same, but it was very, very close. And I was like, okay, there we go. I figured out at least, you know, and I'm not a dietitian and I'm not going to prescribe how people eat, 
but I think explore, uh, don't expect, you know, to be perfect, find what works for you. Um, and I, I, I continue to optimize it. Uh, like I, I have a little bit of chocolate every day, right? It's like, at what point do I take that chocolate? I used to take it in the morning as like a vitamin. Now I'm taking it more in the afternoon. I'm exploring coffee. Usually the deadline is three, but what if I brought that back to two? Is that going to help my sleep more? So it's this constant kind of curiosity and goofing around. Uh, I really cut back on fruit. But then it's like, well, what if I ate like, you know, I got these little bananas in Hawaii. What if I eat one of these a day? How am I going to feel? I know a whole banana is way too much. I learned that early. Not a whole banana, no way. I just, it's heavy. It makes me feel bad. Um, so yes, I've substantially dialed it in. But then I'm always playing around the edges um, and discovering things. And I really love that. So it's not like I'm on diet and yes and no. It's like, wow, I, I figured out mostly what works for my body. And I, I love what it does for my energy and my ability to do what I want. But let me play around around the edges. And here's this new kind of fermented cracker I found on the farm market. Let me try that. Is that going to work for me? And et cetera. So it's like this adventure. That's how I see it. You know? Are you constantly celebrating and acknowledging yourself for choosing the right foods? After, um, actually, no. I, after the habit wires in, you don't have Sleep to it. celebrate it. I mean, the celebration, the emotion piece is to wire it in. However... In a challenging circumstance. So, uh, Ben, I had a pretty serious popcorn addiction. <laughs> I know. You're, you're a terrible person. <laughs> they would not let me put it in my book, but I had a real struggle with popcorn for years. Yeah. And I thought popcorn was super healthy for me. It turns out it's the exact opposite. Popcorn is like kryptonite for me. So let's say, I, this is a true story. I'm up at a friend's home and she's serving this dinner and she's like, for dessert, Here's this really special popcorn I bought. And I was like, crap. She's, she bought this really high-end special popcorn. She's serving it to me as a dessert. So I don't want to make her awkward, but I do not. I've just learned from me and popcorn. It's just say no. It's like 100% abstinence or a slippery slope. And I know that sounds insane. It's really funny. But it is kryptonite for me. So what I did in that case is I just took the popcorn, I put it in the napkin because it was just a little dish. I put it in my pocket and I didn't say anything. No, I just said, you know, thank you for the dinner. She knows and, now. In that, because <laughs> I threw it in my pocket. In that case, it was like, good for you, BJ. This was a tough situation and you got it done. So if it, you know, is a new kind of more difficult behavior and you deal with it, then yeah, then it's like, good for you. You stuck to your game plan and you didn't offend anybody. I like that a lot. Do you have any books coming out? Any, any new ones coming out that you're working on? Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't talk about uh, all that yet, but you know, the Tiny Habits book lays the foundation for behavior design. Mm -hmm. So now on top of that, I can build other aspects of behavior design and it's all a system, people. Once mm -hmm. you see that it all works together in this systematic way, then the next pieces are just like building blocks that go into the system. So that is um, just, um, I, I'll just say, yeah, learn the basics, learn the system, you know, starting with the fog behavior model. And then from there, and you'll see how the other pieces, like how do you change a choice? How do you stop a habit? How do you get other people to do hard things, et cetera, all are part of this overall system. Is that something you teach? I believe you, I know you have the five-day course, then you have a longer one that's for um, practitioners, right? People who actually want to be, you know, certified in your methods. Yeah. So there's two professional trainings that I do with my sister, Linda, there's the tiny habits coach certification. So that is really deep dive into tiny habits and gives you insights and materials and so on that you're licensed to use. On the other end of the spectrum, I call it a behavior design bootcamp. That's for people creating new products and services. And that's not about tiny habits. That's about the broader work, behavior design, the models and methods to create any behavior change product or service um, in a very efficient, systematic way. 
So I actually signed up for one right before COVID happened. I believe you were doing them live in the past, were you not? Like, oh. And I was like the last cohort and it got canceled. I was like, oh. So this was like years ago, right before COVID. I think it was the very last one. I was supposed to be in the last one you did or, or yeah, we were canceled. Yeah, that was too bad. But the good news on that, Ben, is then we reinvented the boot camp online virtual yeah and we spread it over four weeks and we created a whole digital tools library for those boot camp for and the training now is i would have never believed this it's better than it was the the, yeah the virtual training spread over four weeks is better than the in-person one except for the personal relationships yeah you know and you know that in-person intensive for me and for the people that come together. Yeah, that's really, because when you learn stuff together, it bonds you, mm-hmm. you know, and that it happens very, very reliably. So the good news is, yeah, the, the, the zoom based uh, boot camps are really, really effective. Um, the bad news is we're not doing them right now. The, we're not doing the in-person ones right now. We got one done this year, but then Delta came along and we stopped. We'll, 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 we'll open that back up when we can. I look forward to it, BJ. Where can everyone go find more from you? Uh, website, book, tell me it all. Yeah. Um, well, the Tiny Habits book brings together um, a lot of my behavior design work and the Tiny Habits method. Um, and it's that book is all my work. I'm not like drawing on other people's. I, there's just a lot to share. And then there's stuff we couldn't include in the book because it made it too long. Uh, so that bjfog.com is a good um, kind of dashboard. And if you want to get right to tiny habits, tinyhabits.com. So much value, so much wisdom, BJ. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us today. You are welcome. Thank you so much, Ben, for inviting me. That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. I hope you enjoy the podcast with BJ Fogg. I'm truly honored and privileged to have BJ as a guest on the show. He's not an easy man to track down, but I did it for you guys because I know that ultimately behavior is the thing that's going to hold us back. And I truly feel like I benefited immensely, not only for myself and my desired behavior change, but for my coaching clients that I take on high achievers to ultimately help them transform. And, and for anyone out there who um, desires to pursue your greatness I hope you reach out to BJ. Say thank you for all this information. If you guys ever need help, I'm here for you. You can reach out to me personally on Instagram. Reach out to me personally on Twitter, on Facebook, and the Facebook group. I highly suggest everyone who listens to this podcast join the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group. We're doing a lot ongoing to grow that Facebook group. We're going to be providing huge amounts of value, huge amounts of information to help you live your greatest life in a body you absolutely love. Thank you very much for being here, ladies and gents. Don't forget to share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who's striving to live their greatest body, live their greatest life in a body they love. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.